Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So this is James Altucher. I am here with Ted Leonsis. And Ted, I'm going to just straight out say you're a billionaire. I don't know if you call yourself that or not, or if you like talking about that, but I'm going to say it. Okay. So you're going to have to deal with that. Because, Ted, I've been following your career forever. In fact, I saw you speak in 1998. You were very inspirational. And uh, I sort of see your career as pretty amazing because you've been at the very beginning of incredible trends. And not just in one area, in several different areas. And I kind of want to discuss that. But if you don't mind, I'm just going to give the highlights of your career and then we can start talking. Okay, thank you. So you you started this marketing company, Redgate Communications. You had the foresight to sell to AOL in 1994. I mean, I think their stock went up 10,000% after that. Then you you own now three sports teams in the Washington, D.C. area, including the the Wizards, uh, which is the basketball team, obviously, the hockey team, the, the Capitals, and then the WNBA team that they have there. You own uh, the Verizon Center Arena. You own Snag Films, which makes all sorts of documentaries and films and so on. You're an active investor. You're the chairman of, of Groupon. Uh, the list goes on. But what what I want to – and you also wrote this incredible book, The Business of Happiness, which – how about we start with that? Why did you write The Business of Happiness? Um, well, because I would give speeches and be talking about – business and then I would talk about the life reckoning I had and talk about happiness and afterwards um, young people would say the parts of my speech that resonated most was when I was authentic and talked about how we over index as a society and community on talking about success in terms of dollars and that that I had learned um, a very va- valuable life lesson, which is that if you're if you're successful, it doesn't mean you can be happy. But if you're happy, more times than not, it means you can be successful. And that we needed to talk more about that, about how you keep a life scorecard, and how to become self-actualized, and that individually. If you focus on happiness, that what I'm finding is that companies that, you know, are in pursuit of this higher calling, it's not just about EBITDA or cash flow, um, that happy companies seem to be the most successful companies. And so there's something to this formula. And so I wrote a book, and I'm very, very pleased that people have uh, responded so well to its message. Well, and you you said you had this uh, kind of life-reckoning moment. What was that moment? Talk about that. Um, well, I my dad was a waiter. He never went to uh, finish high school. My mom was a secretary. They they weren't financially successful, and they they drove me to be part of the immigrant dream. Right? You each generation will do better than than the previous generation, and they wanted me to go to college, and they always preached, um, work real hard, get a good college, get good grades. If you get good grades, you'll get a good job. If you get a good job, maybe you'll have a good career. You have a good career, you'll make a lot of money. If you make a lot of money, you'll be successful. That was kind of... So so, sort of at the end comes success and happiness. Yeah, exactly. in In that path. And so I did as instructed, and as you noted, at an early age, I started a company and I sold. I made a lot of money. and But I wasn't that happy. And I kind of lost my way. 
And what I, does that I mean? Was, so this is 1994. Um, you sold your company for forty no, million. No, I actually had started a company, even a first company, and sold it in 1983. I think I was 26 years old, and I made I don't know 70 million dollars. I made a lot of money at a very young age. And for someone who grew up in a household where you know the parents didn't make more than twenty-five thousand, thirty thousand dollars a year. That was a dramatic change. Wait, what was and, this company? I actually don't know this. Um, well, it was called Redgate Publishing, and I, it was a publishing magazine. I published magazines for Apple Computer and for for a compact computer and the like. And and um, in fact, the first million Macintoshes that shipped. Uh, Steve Jobs put one of my magazines in each of those uh, those Macs. It was called the Macintosh Buyer's Guide. That's incredible. So you were kind of at the beginning of the whole personal computing movement. Yes, I, I very much was connected to that, and you know, right place at the right time. That's why my company was in Florida. IBM had just introduced the PC in Boca Raton, and the first book I ever wrote was called Blue Magic, which focused on the launch of the IBM PC. And Steve Jobs didn't mind you uh, glorifying the IBM PC? Well, actually, the people at Apple saw the work we were doing with with Apple and said, can you do that for us at, I mean, at IBM, and can you do that for us at Apple? So... Uh. So I, I sold the company at a young age and made some money, and then I got on to an airplane, and we had all sorts of mechanical issues. And in the air, like 40,000 feet high. Yep. And we're told, you know, we're going to make an emergency landing and, and prepare. And there's nothing more humbling and sobering than having a... A reckoning. Now, we have reckonings all the time. You know, our heart is broken, a financial goal isn't met, an aspiration is dashed, um, you, know, you have disappointments. Reckonings come in all shapes and sizes, and it's how you react to those reckonings that really propel you to whether you'll have a life without regret. And while the plane was, you know, getting prepared, people started praying and people started crying, and I was left with, what, what's my strength? What am I going to do? So I started to pray, and, and the best deal I could try to cut with this higher calling was, um, if you let me through this, I'll leave more than I take, and I will try and make this next part of my life more meaningful to the world, not just to me, because, you know, I really was programmed to do well individually. And, and, so, so, and so it's at this point, how, how long after, how long was this after you had sold your first company? About 15 months. Okay, and so in that fifteen months, were you just hanging out, or like, what were you, what were you fine. doing in, yeah, as, I do in the events things. leading up to this? Uh, you do. I was still working for the company that acquired us, <laughs> and then I did all the things that you would do. I, I bought a house, and I had lots of girlfriends, and I bought, bought cars, and I. And you I, still had sixty-nine million left over. <laughs> And and that's what I mean when I say I was losing my way. I I was declaring victory under a false pretense of what victory is defined as. I, I think a lot of times people, when they make that first batch of money, they sort of like wipe their hands and they're like, oh, okay, ah, I finished. I'm right. done. As, exactly. as the, My work as a human is I can, I can move on. So the following weekend, you know, obviously we made it through, everything was okay. I made a list of 101 things to do before I die. It was my first entree, if you will, into, okay, how, if I had to write my obituary, 
how would I keep score? And, and I made a list as a very, very young person that I'm not very proud of today when I look back because I didn't have the tools, if you will, to know what would make for a life without regret. And I, and I made this list, and, and there's something very meaningful and powerful about creating a life list. In fact, you know, the reason I own my sports teams is, you know, way back in the day when I wrote my list, I put, you know, own a sports team, win a championship, uh, you know, take a company public, give X dollars to charity, you know, support someone in the arts. Um, I mean, I just made this very random list. And I'm now. What, what embarrasses you about that list? Because all those well, things you said you know, were, were there interesting. There were still some things in there that, in hindsight, weren't as meaningful as they should be. And, like what? Um, get a hole in one, go into outer space. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know? All right. Catch a foul ball. Huh. Um, and. And I have caught a foul ball. I haven't gotten a hole in one yet, and I would <laughs> like to go in outer space. But but what it did force me to do was then become a student of happiness, and I participate in lots of studies and you know put online panels together and gave some money to some researchers. And, and what my book is about is that at the end of the day, there are very, very few things that define and best practice how to become happy and self-actualized. And, and they, they are six fundamentals. The, the first is that you are an active participant in multiple communities of interest. Why multiple? Okay. Um, because connecting and kind of interwebbing, if you will, um, you know, you, you're active where you work, and then you're active in, in your sporting events, and maybe you get a softball team at work to, to participate with the softball teams in church or synagogue and that you can start to almost uh, metric those connections and that the busy you are and the more active you are with those multiple communities, uh, the happier and more productive you are. And it's ironic that businesses that tap into that, probably the most successful product I ever worked on and launched was AOL's AIM, its instant messenger product. And it was all about helping you to manage your multiple communities of interest. Twitter is a direct outgrowth of what AIM pioneered back in the early 90s. Starbucks, you talk to Howard Schultz, he talks about he's really in the community services neighborhood business. Uh, eBay talks about it being a community of interest. Facebook, a couple of hundred billion dollar market cap company now, you know, Mark Zuckerberg talks about how he hacked into AIM early on and they're all about really social networking, which was what AIM was a precursor of. The, the point I make is that individuals that internalize managing multiple communities of interest is important, and also businesses that tap into that seem to have very, very happy customers, very, very happy employees, and they've built a lot of value. So that, that's, it, it, it seems like that's a big source of creativity, too, because I'll use Groupon as, as an example. They were initially, you know, focused on, you know, raising money online for yeah. charities, right? Oh, yeah, and the then, point. And yep, then, very much so. And then, be, yeah. but but they were they were able to easily be creative and pivot uh, because they were also interested in e-commerce and putting together good discounts yep. once they had this huge list of people. Yes, and I'll, I'll talk about Groupon in a moment in another one of the, the categories. The, the second category is that you that you have high levels of self-expression. That we. We as a people are inherently creative. We want our voice heard. 
um, you know, I, I blog every day, tedstake.com. Every single day I blog. I wrote books. I've made movies, even though I would be considered a suit, right, a business person. I'm, I'm self-expressing as much as I can. And companies, you, know, you should come to a Washington Capitals game and see how we activate self-expression from the fan base, right? Co- companies that, that activate the collective creativity of their customers or their employees um, and, and really harp on self-expression. I mean, Twitter is all about People saying, listen to me. What I have to say is important. There's a reason there's 300 million bloggers on a daily basis around the world. And and when you think about it, um, self-expression and hearing people is vitally important. I've been married for 27 years, and the only time I ever get into an argument with my wife, you know what she says to me? You're not listening to me. And, and so self-expression, really, really key. And you have to manage that and, and just get into that groove to understand that you're talking and you're listening to other people's self-expression is, is really vital. Um, the third is that you have very high levels of personal empathy. Empathy as a, as a human emotion, probably the least understood or least valued, but we know that the lack of empathy is what creates evil in our world. It's what sociopaths do. And we know that people that exhibit high levels of empathy, I'm here in Washington, D.C., they get monuments built after them, right? The last monument here on the mall, I'm practically looking at it out my window as I'm talking to you and your listeners, was the Martin Luther King Memorial. And, and you know, Martin Luther King had incredible amounts of personal empathy. He also had personally high levels of self-expression. I mean, the I Have a Dream speech, perhaps the most important speech you know, in our history in, in, in America, uh, he also was all about community. And, and they built a monument to him. He predicted his own assassination. He, he, he knew that he could pay the ultimate price in trying to inculcate civil rights and respect and, and diversity into, into our populace. And, and companies that have high levels of empathy for their customers and for their employees and have empathetic leadership, those are the companies that tend to have the highest stock price. I, I'll give you a great example. I was an early on investor in Google, and Sergey Brin and I went on the press tour when they did the big deal with AOL, and I was president of AOL at the time, and we bought like 5% of the company. We went on this big tour, and, and they were going to, to partner with us and provide our search to our customers. And I got to know Sergey a little bit, and he was a Russian emigre. His father came from Russia, taught at University of Maryland, and, and that experience and listening to his dad colored a lot of his worldview. And fast forward six or seven years later, and Google's doing great in China, and China starts to implement to Google, hey, we want your servers here in China. We want to be able to read emails and instant messages. And Sergey says, I couldn't do that. I can't live with myself. We're not going to do business directly in China if that's the cost. Mm. And, and that was unbelievable personal empathy. At first, the newspapers and the analysts wrote, what a bad business call, if you will, uh, to, 
to not want to play ball in the biggest developing Internet community. And I remember thinking the employees are going to rally around him. The advertisers are going to rally around him. This was really the right thing to do in the right way, but it's also going to turn out to be great business. And it did. Google's business is stronger, stronger than it's ever been. So personal empathy is vitally important. Um, Fourth is getting out of the I and into the we, into the collective. We know that teams win. We know that there's a power of coupling. We know that there's, there is this wisdom of crowds that, you know, if you tap into. And, and we also know that when you get out of the I and go into service to community, into we, that your perspective changes, that your, that your context of where you sit in the world order is dramatically uh, enhanced. And so... Well, so why, people, why do you think that is? Do you think because we have uh, a, a bias towards uh, helping the, the tribe or the herd or whatever, and that moves our status up in our, in our minds? I think um, you can sit around and say, um, oh, gosh, I went to the restaurant and there was a long line and I didn't like the food and it was too expensive and I'm never going to go there today and it ruined my day, which is someone told me two days ago. How's it going, man? What's new? And he tells me of his experience at lunch and he goes on and on. It's, it, it defined his day. It was his whole story of the day, like yeah. this miserable story. Yep. And and two blocks away from the restaurant where he ate here in town, there's D.C. Central Kitchen, where it's a charity that many of us here in D.C. are involved in. And we take homeless people and we bring them into the kitchen and we we teach them how to be cooks and chefs. And they cook food, and then we deliver it to the homeless, or we bring the homeless into this kitchen. And I guarantee you, if you go spend two hours, which a lot of people do, going and volunteering and helping and cooking and serving, you'll never complain about the food at the restaurant or the service, right? And, and that's what I mean, getting out of the eye and into the we, your perspective changes dramatically. That was, you'd have so much more enriched experience than those two hours, and and you'll be positive, I, not negative. And this this relates to your your concept of over-indexing, where you kind of value you, your your list of values becomes incredibly small instead of including this wider the wider world. Yeah, very much so. Then then the next. Um, that you are finding the higher calling in all of your pursuits. You know, early on at AOL, we never talked about building a $150 billion market cap company or a $10 billion revenue company. We talked about um, leveling the playing field and bringing democracy around the world and and making a media that was more valuable to its customers than the previous media of print and radio and television. We we had a higher calling. An an outgrowth of the higher calling and being in pursuit of that was that we did very, very well financially. We then merged with Time Warner and when we merged, I remember our first big meeting as two groups, and I, I asked the question, what is our higher calling as a merged company? And I was told $11 billion of EBITDA. <laughs> who, who told you that? <laughs> what? Was that a Ted Turner quote? No, he, the, the, you know, Turner people were there. It was a, like a corporate, why did we merge? Well, because we can... We can find a billion dollars of synergy and pay down debt. It was, 
we lost the higher calling. We, mm-hmm. we I, I would say, we were no longer about Main Street. We were about Wall Street. And, you know, I would say nobody wakes up in the morning is having breakfast with their kids. Their daughter says, Daddy, what are you going to do today? I'm going to rush to go make EBITDA. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't eat. Still to today, I couldn't figure out. Was it EBITDA with an E or O-EBITDA with an O, right? And, and, and companies that lose their higher calling lose value. And companies that understand what their higher calling is and do everything in their power, you know, for that. So my higher calling post my reckoning was when I do pass, I want to be able to say I, I – left more than I took, right? And I also want to be loved, not needed. That was another thing that I've given a lot of, of thought about. So so pursuit of that higher calling and then and then when I wrote the book, it seemed like a new concept. I think now it's pretty well discussed, but create double bottom line activities businesses you know you can do well by doing good you talked about Groupon earlier Groupon initially at its heart the founder of the company Andrew Mason it was was a double bottom line pursuit you know he started it as the point and then when it morphed to Groupon at its heart was that in 2008, 2009, banks weren't lending to small businesses. Small businesses had no way to get new customers, and young people were struggling with their budgets. So here came this company, Groupon. Yes, it offered you a deal of the day, and you could save a lot of money at restaurants and haircuts and buying stuff. But for a merchant, they were getting their money up front. We were factoring, if you will, and and floating companies' money when banks weren't doing that, right? We'd get orders up front, and then we'd give the merchant the cash within 30 days. I, I like so, that. I have never heard that concept of double bottom lines, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, very much so. Then I started a company called Snag Films. You mentioned that. I started to make movies, and I realized that that the Hollywood and the distribution system, frankly, was broken, and that that there were so many mission-based films that were being made that had nowhere to be distributed. And so, go check out snagfilms.com, and you'll see lots of documentary films and higher calling films and you can watch the film and then if you like it you can share it and all of these films they try to activate charitable giving or they have something you know good for the most part wrapped around them so Ted how would a young person go about finding their own personal higher calling I think that's a big challenge for many people in their 20s I think they feel they're entitled to a higher calling when I think it's something that you work towards that's right, but, but I'm, I'm very optimistic and positive about young people. I, I think this generation that's graduated the last couple of years is really enamored with double bottom line companies. And I mean, there's still a subset that, you know, I want to go to business school and go work at Goldman Sachs and be a partner by X. But I, but I do feel that young people want to be in service to their community. More and more young people want to go work for as teachers and as volunteers and, and with nonprofits. And they're willing to trade off a little bit of creature comfort and the win in terms of dollars for satisfaction, happiness, and the ability to say, I'm, I'm a part of something bigger than just, you know, being able to, 
have a bigger apartment or a nicer car. And, and, and that is something that I'm seeing more and more of when I interview young people. They're asking really, really fundamental questions. You know, I'm, I happen today, I'm, I'm at Verizon Center, you know, sports teams, mm-hmm. and, you know, our basketball season and hockey season are about to start. And, of course, we want to sell a lot of tickets and get good ratings on television and, and make the playoffs and win championships, right? That's our core deliverable. But we pay just as much emphasis on on bringing our community closer together and activating commerce for the whole city. We were, the Caps a couple years ago, were the D.C. Chamber of Commerce Business of the Year because these people come from Virginia, our fans come from Virginia and Maryland, and and they they go shopping before the game, they come to the game, and when we win, they go celebrate after the game. We were activating commerce locally. We oh, also and, and, we're also one of the biggest charitable givers in the community because we've turned our players. You know, we have 25 players in the hockey team, 15 players in the basketball team. They're all multimillionaires. We've turned them into philanthropists, and then we couple them with with what we do with with our company, and then our fans and our sponsors. And all of a sudden, we've created this charitable giving back network that really is a major player in our community. And so I also want to point out you're, you're involved in the efforts to bring the Olympics in 2024 to Washington, D.C. Yeah, and that, that to me is an ultimate double bottom line. Uh, we're getting the opportunity to envision what should our city look like in a dozen years? What, what, what should it be like? And the questions we're talking about here, so D.C. is one of the fastest growing. It's the wealthiest community in the country. It is a powerful city, but 10 miles, 8 miles outside of the White House are two of the poorest, least educated, least tended populace and communities in the country. And that is unacceptable. And so we look at can we, there's the Anacostia River. Well, let's clean up the Anacostia River and have rowing and volleyball and we'll leave a beach and we'll make that beachfront property. And let's put the Olympic Village in Ward 7 or Ward 8 and and then we can turn that into low-income housing like they did in London. You know, let's put an Olympic Stadium in one of those wards and then build around that because we've seen what Verizon Center did for this part of D.C. You know, where, where I'm situated right now, 20 years ago, this was adult bookstores and drug dealing and prostitution and abandoned buildings. And now there's the... Verizon Center and the number one legal seafoods and Clyde's is next door and and there's you know the most cafes and restaurants this became the the epicenter for entertainment and you know it's generating tax revenues I mean it, it this neighborhood turned around and and so, so I really Ted, believe that the Olympics can have that long-term transformational effect on the community and not just be about the two and a half weeks where the games are played. Sure, and and, and I think, uh, look, I think it's it's under heavy consideration, right? Like, D.C. is one of three teams still being, uh, three cities still being considered? Well, it's Boston, L.A., San Francisco, and D.C. Hmm. But that's, for, that's for the U.S., and then the USOC will hopefully pick one of our four cities and then proffer us up, and then we'll have heavy international competition um, from great cities outside of the U.S., and then the IOC votes on what's the best place, what's the best best venue for the athletes, for the sponsors, um, and, you know, we're hoping to show that D.C., it's, it's the capital of America. We're the only capital city to never host the games. 
Right. And, so, and the last Summer Olympics here was Atlanta. So, so Ted, it's this. So you mentioned, like, you, you asked yourself, where is this city? Where is D.C. 10 years from now? It's this visionary aspect that I want to talk about. Like, again, you became heavily involved with AOL in 1994 when very few people realized the Internet was going to be this huge thing. Honestly, nobody realized until like 96 or 97. Then several years ago, you start, you know, you bought uh, the Wizards, I guess, in, in 2010. Now basketball teams are like the L.A. Clippers just went for two billion dollars. In the middle, you're an investor in Google, which obviously became the greatest search engine, and maybe the greatest company in, in history. 1983, you were heavily involved in Apple. Where does this visionary aspect come from? How, how does one develop that? Um, well, I think reading and networking, you know, I, I went, my first job out of college was with a small populist software company called the Wang Laboratories. And I stumbled into going to the West Coast Computer Fair. And I met Steve Jobs. Uh, this was 1979. Wow. <laughs> and and it was like being at Woodstock. You you could tell something was happening. And and so I you I could tell something that was happening. What did that feel like inside? Um. Well, you know, probably the epiphany moment I had was I I bought an Apple II computer at that West Coast Computer Fair in 1979 or 1980. Um, and I brought it home, and a couple of weeks later, I bought a TV guide. And and I'll never forget, you know, the TV guide was the number one best-selling magazine in America. And the front of the magazine was interviews with television show directors and stars, and the back of the book was a guide of what shows played on what network at one time. And I remember throwing it away thinking, I can't believe this is the number one best-selling magazine in America. And then later that night, I went in front of my Apple II, and I had three programs aside it. And I was staring at it, and I just remember having this aha insight that this CRT screen that I was looking at, a cathode ray tube, it really was just a piece of glass. And it reminded me that this could be a television. We called it a computer now, but it looked like a television. And TV Guide was talking about programs, and here I had these three little software programs. And TV Guide was talking about networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. And I had just come from the West Coast computer, computer Fair where they were talking about networks, Ethernet networks, precursors to the Internet. And I honestly just thought one day all this speak, all this vocabulary, all this technology – would blur together, that there would be no differential, if you will, between television and telephones and computers, and that everything would be digitized, and that there was going to be this opportunity to create new programs. And for a young person, an entrepreneur at heart, I had started my first business in college. I sold red, white, and blue snow cones on the campus at Georgetown University during the bicentennial, be a patriot, eat a snow cone. Um, and, and so I, I just felt this was the way because it was early and the rules were just being written. And why not be someone who wrote the rules as opposed to someone who had to follow the rules? So, and, so, so. I mean, obviously that was very prophetic. I mean, just an hour ago, I was using an Apple TV hooked up to a screen watching Family Guy on Netflix. So, yeah, well, the, there you go. I mean, I, it, it came it true in amazing. my house at least. Yeah, it's truly amazing. I remember the first time on my iPad, I'm watching a 
Caps game while I'm on vacation with my family over sling box through my house, and you go, what is this? Is this a mobile device? Is this a television? Is this a wireless device? And, you know, it was true... It was true convergence right there. And, well, well, yeah. and, and think about it too, like, like you were watching um, a sports event uh, through Slingbox. Sports somehow that also seems to be part of the vision because it's the one type of event where everybody still wants to watch it yeah. real time. And I believed early, early on that distribution would become less and less valuable and content would become more and more valuable. And that, you know, one of the, I I bought the sports teams because it was on my list of 101 things to do. I thought it'd be a lot of fun. I thought it'd be great for the community. But I also knew from a business standpoint that sports was being undervalued because as all content became digitized, the relationship between viewer and broadcaster would change. I I remember early on at AOL, our usage would go start at 7 p.m. and grow, and on Thursday nights at 9 to 10 o'clock, it would dip as people stopped being online to watch Seinfeld or Friends, right? And and NBC called it must-see TV, right? Today, if Seinfeld was on, a very small group of people would watch it at 9 o'clock. I mean, yeah, I think it was on at 9 o'clock on Thursday because they would be able to get it on demand whenever they wanted, right? And right. and so, you know, my, my daughter watched an entire series, um, Gossip Girl, with three girlfriends over a long weekend. And when I asked her... What network was that on? And it was a dollar an episode or two dollars an episode, whatever it was, and 13 episodes times three or four years. You know, they spent $100 and, and over a long, rainy weekend, they came home from college and watched it all. They and her pinched. brain wasn't shot after that. Well, it's funny because I said, what network was it on? And she said, Apple TV. Huh. <laughs> right? Not the not. CW, I guess, is what the network was at the time. But sports, man, the game starts at 7.06, and it ends at 10, and and we get massive ratings because you've got to watch it live, you've got to watch it in real time, and now you've got your device on the couch, and you're tweeting and talking and watching, you know, other highlights and seeing other other scores from around and and now you have this two screen experience but but the only content that brings people together in large numbers in real time is sports programming well it's, yeah. it's interesting because so obviously you had that instinct mark cuban had that instinct steve bomber um paid two billion which he thought thought was is he does think is very reasonable for that because he has the same instinct all these tech guys are coming from the tech world to the sports world because of this exact same reason. Yeah, and and Steve Ballmer is just a really smart guy, and he looked and said, this looks like a SaaS business model to me, where you have the majority of your revenues are reoccurring. You get big national TV deals, and hopefully they'll go up in the future, and big local TV deals and they'll go up in the future and then you sell suites and their long-term contracts and naming rights, their long-term contracts, like a software company, a SaaS business model. And Will, will broadcast TV as a industry be able to survive with just, like, why don't you sell, sport, why doesn't the NBA sell rights to Netflix, for instance? Well, I, I think at some point, Netflix and Apple and Google, companies with lots of cash and lots of ways to monetize video content, will enter the rights picture, right? And I'm sure the way they'll get at it is there'll be a, a third package or a different package is 
is done. For traditional broadcast television, they more and more have to generate subscription-y-like revenues. In many cases, that's called retransmission fees, right? It's so, so just giving news, you know, news is such a commodity product now. You can get news from so many sources. So more and more distributors are looking for what kind of, of content can they get that's unique and differentiated. And movies, I mean, it's why, it's why Netflix is so successful. When you think of the basic Netflix offer, it's essentially for the price you would pay for one ticket, you know, $10 a month for one ticket, you can have access to thousands and thousands and thousands of movies plus original content and the like. Just pay as, as if you would go to one less movie a month and you get so much more. Genius, right? And they, they, they now are spending lots of time and effort in original content, very differentiated, which is no different than HBO, right? HBO basically recycled other people's movies, and, and then they started to make original programming. And, and today, I think you'd say that HBO is more defined by its breathtaking creative that it made, you know, like The, the Sopranos, than showing the Harry Potter movies, you know, that they buy from their own studio to show on HBO to subscribers, right? But it's that programming mix, but more and more the original content is what defines them and why people will pay, you know, a big monthly fee to just have HBO, whether they watch it or not. It's almost like an insurance policy of if I want to watch movies, if I want to see great creative, I'll go to HBO, I'll pay for it. And I think even uh, a lot of the people behind, let's say, House of Cards on Netflix uh, worked on HBO shows originally. That's where they came from. It was yep. a good training ground. Yep, very much so. I, I, I say that because I worked, used to work at HBO, so I'm, I'm oh, proud yeah. of it. Okay. it. It was a great company to work for. So, so class. coming for, going forward... You know, given you've been in the right place at the right time so many times, where would you be positioning yourself right now if you were starting out? Well, what what I um, preach to young people um, is that the world is going so much programmatic and mathematic that even if you want to be a movie director or you want to work at a charity, that math and and understanding the web and mobile is something you have to be focused on. And so, you know, study, make sure that even if you're an English major, that you're doing something that's mathematic. And and I, I firmly believe, you know, the best marketers now are metric marketers. You know, the, the best general managers in sports are the ones that really have internalized stats, right? And so, so you've got to have a strong basis in math, and that starts at a really early age. And so, you know, as parents... You have to get tutors. You have to prepare and get your kids ready for this software algorithmically run world that we'll all live in. And, and you know, if they don't do – if you, the kids aren't doing well in basic math and multiplication, multiplication and division, um, and then they don't do well in, in algebra – they're not going to do well on the go forward, and they're going to be ill-prepared for the world competitively. So, so you're you're kind of saying that mobile, even I'm even thinking in terms of like entrepreneurs, like more than just where kids should be, but where should entrepreneurs be looking right now to kind of start their first businesses or second businesses or whatever? 
Well, the, it, there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur than there is right now because, you know, when we, when we were launching and scaling AOL, it was expensive to buy hardware and software, and we had to build our own network. You know, now for $50 a month or $100 a month, you can go to Amazon's web services and launch a network, right? And back then, we probably had a pool of 10,000 math PhDs, and, you know, now it's 20,000 a, a year, which is much better, except that a country like China is probably graduating 2 million, you know, math PhDs a year. Without the, the number on the scale side there is enormously tilted the wrong way. And so, so you got to do math, and then you have to be open to being an attacker. Um, you know, I, I look at Google attacked AOL, Facebook attacked AOL and built really, really big franchises, and now companies are attacking them, right? Groupon, in a way, is attacking Amazon, and basically we've said, well, there was a big a big segment that wasn't being focused on, which was local, right? That, that, you know, we wanted to be the place where within 10 miles of your house or a mile of where you work, that you would go to eat and get your hair done and buy things and the like, because, you know, that's where we think people live their, their lives. And if you just look at your wallet or your checkbook, you'll see that 70 to 80% of your expenditures are done 20 miles from your home. And, and so, so you have to be open to opportunity. You have to get in early. Um, I don't think derivative deals ever work. You know, early on with Groupon, we probably had 250 competitors. And, and you know, we would hear, well, you're never going to win. You're never going to scale because they're so, it's so easy to compete. And we'd say, this isn't easy to compete. We went from zero to 14,000 employees in five years. You know, we had to build warehouses. We, we're, we have offices in 700 cities. You think that's easy to compete with? You've never started and run a business. But, but look at, like, Google, though. That was sort of a derivative in the search engine space to some extent. Well, you know, we it's, it's interesting because at AOL, we – bought a search engine company and then we did a deal with with Alta Vista and we had a deal with Excite and then we went to Google, right? So there were many operations. What what Google did at first, and you know their pitch to us was um, we're an arms dealer. We're just going to be in the algorithmic search business and you can say this is AOL search, and it's powered by Google, or you could say it's Google search on AOL, they were, they didn't really care. Their belief and their bet, which turned out to be genius, was the more click-throughs that they could get onto their algorithms, the more precise their algorithm would be and the better results that they proffered up to customers that would create a sense of comfort and trust, and then consumers would come back because they would get the best listings, and and the amount of traffic that you generated was important. So early on, they went for reach, and they built this great black box, this great algorithm that you know has now made them probably the greatest media company of all time. So your sense was that they weren't quite derivative, that they were almost first mover in having, um, a, 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 let's call it a 10x better algorithm than the, than the runner-up, let's say, was AltaVista. Yeah, and they developed such an unbelievably astute and efficient money store that being derivative, so, you know, I used to laugh and say, well, we wrote their original business plan, right? So, you know, we owned MapQuest, so then they went after Maps, and you know, AOL Mail, everyone had mail, and they did Gmail, and then we had AIM, right? And then yeah, so they know, were we had our own browser. Started. Right, they, they literally took 
everything that we offered in the AOL client and did it, frankly, in many cases, much better in a singular application, but it was all monetized through AdWords and, you know, what they perfected through their algorithms. So, you know, they... They executed incredibly well and did a great, great job. But, but being the, you know, I used to, a couple of years ago, all the business pitches I get, you know, we're going to be the Google of travel. We're going to be the Google of healthcare. Then it was, we're going to be the Facebook of real estate. We're going to be the, and, and everyone tries to, to emulate and then add some value around a known metaphor, you know, like a winning company. But you know what? And, what I hear from you is that it's in these multiple communities of interest, these intersections. Like you described to me, you brought home the Apple II, the Apple II computer in, in 1980, and you had a TV guide right next to it. And then in the beginning of our conversation, you said your, your first company was a magazine publishing company about computers. So you, yep. you basically merged the TV guide with the computer and created your first company. And it seems like it's in these intersections that you kind of find the the missing billions yes i I believe mashing up and having into disciplinary thought and being able to connect those dots uh is one of the way that one of the ways that you innovate steve i'll give you a a great example steve case um was the founder of aol and my boss and now my partner in our private equity funds um he one of his first jobs was at Procter and Gamble, and he worked as a brand manager on a shampoo product. They would do sampling when they were going to bring the shampoo product into grocery stores in a new community. They literally would put some shampoo in the mail and they would like hang it on your door right so you could sample it and and when we saw, when he saw the first computer with a modem built in, he said, well, I understand that. Why don't we give away the software to get you online so you could sample it? And my first reaction to that was, that's either the most genius thing I've ever heard or the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because... You mean you want to spend tens of millions of dollars making the software and hundreds of millions of dollars giving the software away. And and that that business practice from another field, consumer goods, shampoo and sampling, is how we got America online. Right? When you think about it, he he literally we executed it well but we were giving we would basically said if you own the previous to the sampling we would run ads if you have a computer and a modem and you want to get online cut out this coupon send us five dollars and we'll send you a startup kit that's that's what the old aol was and then the new aol was we assumed you had a computer and a modem and you wanted to get online so we started mailing to your house and and you know you would you would get on a plane and they'd give you your peanuts in an AOL disc you know you'd go to a game and people would hand out discs you'd you'd buy an Omaha steak and the steak would come and it'd be a disc you'd subscribe to Time magazine in the back of Time magazine there'd be a a disc i mean we we took that to heart and said let's have people sample and we woke up six or seven years later with a third of all U.S. Whole, households being subscribers to AOL and paying us 20 bucks a month. So, I mean, it was genius, but it sounded crazy, but its roots came from a, another industry. It's, it's so interesting. I, I love this philosophy of looking at the intersections to find uh, to find value because I think it's so hard, like you say, to build a derivative business off of a, an industry that everyone's already looked at. Yep. You know, and that's where you get the multiple communities of interest combined with the higher calling. Yep. 
Well, I appreciate all of your time. I can't believe an hour went by. That flew by, and that was a lot of fun. Well, well, Ted, thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you know, good luck with the, the D.C. bid for, for the Olympics and, and with everything. And, and once again, thank you for, for coming on to this podcast. Very sweet of you. Appreciate it. And uh, I listen all the time. I'm a big fan of your work. Keep it up. Okay. Thanks, Ted. Okay, Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day, and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.